Good morning. Let us continue in worship this morning as we open our Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Proverbs, chapter 3. And we will read in verses 9 and 10. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Hear the reading of God's word this morning. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I think it is clear that the Bible constantly reminds us that true faith in Jesus, through true faith in God, is never a dead thing. Instead, faith works, meaning true faith produces fruit. And even though true faith in Jesus is the gift of God, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 clearly states, there is a simplicity to faith. Think about Noah. He heard the word of the Lord telling him to build an ark. Noah did. He heard and he did. This is faith at work. Think of Abraham. He heard the word of the Lord telling him to relocate to a new land. Abraham did. He heard the word and he did. This is faith at work. Think of Gideon. As he faced the Midianites, God told him to reduce his army first from 32,000, then to 22,000, until finally the Lord told him to reduce the army all the way down to 300 men. Gideon did. He heard and he did. This is faith at work. Think of Paul. He heard the word of the Lord at Corinth, telling him not to be afraid, but to continue to speak. Paul did. He heard the word and he did. This is, once again, faith at work. Faith is to take God as, at his word and to respond accordingly. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 11. If you've ever spent time in that chapter you know what's the common threat running through the entire chapter. The entire chapter, Hebrews 11, seeks to describe faith at work. Faith at work. Over and over it says that by faith, so and so did this or that. Here are just a few examples. By faith, Moses was hidden for three months. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, Moses left Egypt. By faith, the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient. Do you see it? By faith, they did. Faith let them to do. Therefore, faith is not just, I believe I'm going to heaven. Rather, faith says, I will live this life by trusting God, 
Faith will touch every area of my life in the here and now. Proverbs chapter 3 provides a picture of faith at work by describing for us some of the works of faith. And we started many weeks ago by looking at verses 1 and 2, in which we saw that faith, first and foremost, submits to Scripture. That's the first work of faith. Faith is relying upon, resting on, trusting in God's Word. My son, says verse 1, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Faith is to rest in the trustworthiness of the Word of God. Therefore, this is the starting point. Next, we saw how faith expresses itself through love. Consider verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. No love, no faith. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through what? Love. Faith works through love. This is the yoke of Christ Jesus, which we are invited to take upon us. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we determine that this yoke around our neck is an invitation to rejoice in the rule of Jesus in our hearts as our faith works through love in the power of the Spirit. Next, we saw how faith puts no confidence in the flesh. Consider verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. A good New Testament summary of these words is found in the words of Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul said this, We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in what? In the flesh. Faith involves the ongoing process of learning to quiet our souls, our hearts, and our minds under the perfect wisdom of God rather than our own. Undoubtedly, this is one of the central teachings of the Christian faith, to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding. And this is also the work of faith. It is faith at work. Now, having looked at those three works of faith, we find ourselves this morning giving closer attention to the fourth work of faith as described in verses 9 and 10. And here it is, if you're following along in the notes. Faith, number four, rejoices in submissive stewardship. Rejoices in submissive stewardship. Now consider this a very basic, basic um, reminder of things that you uh, already know, but it's important to remind ourselves of these Things. Let's read our text again. Verse 9 Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So, yes, we have entered the realm of possessions, of money, of material things. Do you mean to tell me that faith has something to do with money and possessions? Absolutely. 
Today I want to show you why this is indeed the case. Our passage makes this very, very clear. Faith rejoices in submissive stewardship. I have chosen those words very, very carefully. I believe they offer a summary of what these verses are telling us. So where do we start when it comes to submissive stewardship of our earthly material possessions? Where do we go first? Verse 9 is the place to start. And here's the first point, the theological foundation for submissive stewardship. The theological foundation for submissive stewardship. What is that? Divine lordship. Divine lordship. Honor who? The Lord. Honor the Lord. Submissive stewardship of our possessions begins with a basic acknowledgement of faith. What is that acknowledgement? It is very basic, but critical to everything else. The acknowledgement that there is only one Lord and that we are not him. The acknowledgement that there is only one Lord and that we are not him. In other words, you cannot even begin to be a submissive steward of your material possessions without acknowledging that there is someone over you in all things and at all times. There is a Lord. When Paul stood in the Areopagus during his time in Athens and confronted the Greek philosophers, he started his message with these words, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, being Lord of heaven and earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, Moses told the people of Israel, behold, the, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. In Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, the Lord says, for every beast of the forest is yours. No, he says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. The Lord owns everything because he created everything and has perfect and absolute ownership of all things. Therefore, we begin here. Every human ownership is nothing more than a stewardship of someone else's property. Every human ownership is nothing more than a stewardship of someone else's property. No human individual or entity can claim for itself absolute ownership of anything. Does that mean that private property is just an illusion? Of course not. The Eighth Commandment can only make sense if private, private property is true. You can only steal something if that something rightfully belongs to someone else. But in an ultimate sense, by faith, we understand that all things belong to the Lord. We manage what belongs to Him. And this applies to everything, doesn't it? Consider, for example, a husband, father, has delegated authority given to him within his family. The authority comes from the Lord. 
This husband, father, is to exercise his authority, meaning he's to manage it or be submissive steward of this authority granted to him by the Lord. His authority is never total, only derivative. The Lord alone has all authority in heaven and on earth. Likewise, think about government. Has derivative, delegated authority only, never total authority. Even governments are under the rule of the Lord, as Romans 13 verse 1 says. And their job is to manage that authority, not to abuse that authority or corrupt that authority. The same is true of our material possessions. We are given something from the Lord, and we're all different, right? Some have little, some have much, but whatever the case might be, we are all stewards, managers of something entrusted to us by the Lord who owns everything, who owns everything. Now, when this theological foundation is neglected or removed or forgotten, we get into all sorts of trouble. When we begin to act as lords over our possessions or even over our delegated authority in whatever sphere of life, we risk corruption. Interestingly, the lack of this theological foundation, which sounds somewhat basic to our ears, is the root of all kinds of problems, especially in our day. After all, we do live in the age of expressive individualism and the culture of authenticity. What are those? Those are concepts that say that in order for true individual fulfillment to be achieved, our inward feelings must be given full expression, whatever they might be. The reason we live in dangerous times today is because the basic theological foundation of true felicity, true happiness, true blessedness has been denied. And what is that? We are not lords over our own existence. We are not lords over our own existence. We are creatures under lordship. Submissive stewardship begins here. So then, when it comes to our possessions, what are we called to do? Consider next, the comprehensive call of submissive stewardship. The comprehensive call of submissive stewardship. What is the word there? Honor. Honor. I use the word comprehensive because the word honor is a very comprehensive word. This is a very heavy word, almost in a literal sense. The word honor is similar to the word glory. In the Hebrew, it has the sense of weightiness, heaviness. Negatively, it means a heavy burden. Positively, it means heavy value heavy value. To honor is to ascribe weight, or shall we say value, to something or someone. You honor your parents. What does that mean? Well, if you are a child living under their roof, to honor your parents means that you think of them and their words and their instructions to you as weightier, more valuable than your own, and you must live accordingly. You use your time in a way that values their instructions and their words more than your own. So embedded in the word honor is the idea of submission, submission. Therefore, to honor the Lord means to be a submissive steward. Because he is Lord, you only have things on loan. 
And because he's to be honored, you are to be submissive. Let me put it this way, to put it in very simple terms. To honor the Lord with our wealth and possessions means we know we are accountable to him for what we do with what we have. The filter for all our financial decisions, lifestyle, contributions, offerings, etc., must be to please the Lord. He is our first accountability, not our own desires. So here we enter into the next point, which is the specific means of submissive stewardship. The specific means of submissive stewardship. And what is the word there? Wealth. Wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Now, the Bible has much to say about money, primarily about the dangers associated with what? The love of money. The love of money. At the same time, the Bible does not condemn wealth. In fact, verse 9 assumes some level of wealth because you need wealth in order to fulfill this, honor him. You see, money, wealth, and possessions are things indifferent. They are just objects. The important thing is what you do with them. And the first overarching call is to take our wealth, our possessions, and honor the Lord with them. So let me clarify that this is a direct implication of the eighth commandment. It is a direct implication of the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. To honor the Lord with your wealth means you won't steal from he who owns everything. And you won't abuse or misuse what he has entrusted you with what he has entrusted you with. Now, let's talk about the concept of wealth in general terms for a brief moment. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 115 and consider with me verse 16. Psalm 115 verse 16. Here's a transitional verse. Transitional verse. We have determined that all created things belong to the Lord. Everything is in his hands. He has ultimate, true, and absolute ownership. He's the only one. Everything, is, 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 everything else is delegated. We know this. But now we are about to read what he has graciously done for us. Psalm 115, verse 16. It says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to who? The children of men. Now, let's be careful here, right? Even though we reject the prosperity gospel, and we must hate the prosperity gospel, which says that to be a Christian basically means you can claim material riches for yourself, and please be sure to reject that teaching as false. We also don't deny that the Lord is indeed gracious. He is indeed gracious gracious. He has planted us in this world for our enjoyment. He has given the earth to the children of man. The Lord has given us these things, actual things. Remember Job. When Job lost everything, what is the first thing he said? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Job was rich. Why? Why? Because the Lord 
gave, the Lord gave him that wealth. So wealth itself is not the issue. The real question is how do we honor the Lord with the things we have? How do we become submissive stewards of what we have been given in a more practical sense? Now, the book of Proverbs will get more specific as we move deeper into the book. Proverbs has a lot of very specific instructions to give us in terms of how to manage or be faithful stewards of what we have. For now, I want us to see just a few general principles. To that end, I recruited the help of the Puritans on this matter. The Puritans, they're going to help us to understand what it means to honor the Lord with our wealth. I relied heavily on a book by Leland Riken. Uh, a study on the Puritans titled Worldly Saints. If you ever get a chance to read the book, I would commend it to you, Worldly Saints. So let's go through some principles that the Puritans apply when it comes to the managing and the stewardship of wealth. And the first one is this, love, love. Of course, we're not speaking love of money, but love for the Lord and neighbor. If Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 is a direct implication of the eighth commandment, thou you shall not steal, then it all goes back to the two greatest commandments, love God and love neighbor. Submissive stewardship of our wealth, of our material possessions, of our money has to do first and foremost with love, with love. Richard Baxter said that, quote, money exists for the glory of God and the good of others. For the glory of God and the good of others, who would have thought we are not the main reason for the existence of money? Is God and others. And that's basically a summary of the law, is it not? Love God, love others. Why do you have what you have? Yes, it is for your enjoyment. Let us not lose sight of that it is not a sin to enjoy wealth. After all, and once again, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 is assuming that wealth is a blessing from the Lord. The point, rather, is that riches for themselves should never become the end goal of our lives or the driving force for what we do. And neither should poverty, by the way, as if poverty was in and of itself virtuous. Instead, we should be driven first and foremost by love. Interestingly, and according to Riken, the Puritans were generally very affluent because their work ethic was very, very strong. They sought to please the Lord in their works. But in their view, making money was never an end in and of itself, just the means to an end. What was the end of having money? For the Puritans. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, here's the end toward which we need to work. Paul says this, let the thief no longer, what? Steal. But rather let him, what? Work, doing honest work with his hands. And here comes the reason. Why? To what purpose? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. When I, I preached from this verse a long time ago, I, I made the following comment. 
Honest, diligent work is fueled by compassion, followed by generosity, which are the two arms by which love embraces our neighbor. From this one verse, we can understand that both stealing and poor work ethic stem primarily from a serious deficiency in love and a lack of compassion and generosity. Thankfully, I still agree with my conclusions regarding Ephesians 4.28, and I find that to be a fitting application of our passage this morning. To honor the Lord with our material possessions requires that we see them, those possessions, those material wealth, as means through which love can be expressed tangibly. To honor the Lord with our wealth means that our wealth will be subservient to love. Our wealth must serve the interest of love. We can do this directly as we give to those in need, or we can do this more indirectly as we give to the ministry of the local church regularly and generously through our tithes and offerings. This is faith at work through love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, and in reference to the exemplary generosity of the churches in Macedonia, Paul called their giving generously and sacrificially an act of grace. An act of grace. It is a gracious thing to give and to give generously. Moreover, in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that generous giving is proof of genuine love. Proof of genuine love. We give because we love. So love for God and love for neighbor is the first and central principle of submissive stewardship. We must give generously because God has loved us graciously. And remember, never, never, never allow money to become an end in and of itself. It must always be a means by which we can ultimately express love for neighbor. In a general sense then, especially those of you who are young, watch for any pursuit in your life that is motivated by the acquisition of money or material possessions. Just like sexual lust, material lust can become all-consuming and destructive. How do you know that you are in the right path? Ask yourself, do I want to become this or that for the sake of pleasure or for the sake of Love for neighbor. That's the first principle. The second principle is this from the Puritans. Moderation. Moderation. John Cotton said, and I quote, Faith takes all successes that befalls a person in his calling with moderation. Faith frames the heart for moderation. End quote. In Proverbs chapter 30, and this, this is a good Proverbs for, proverb for you to remember. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. The writer asks the Lord the following. Listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor what? Riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Believe it or not, there are dangers in both riches and poverty. Riches can lead you to an arrogant denial of God, while poverty can lead you to a bitter profanity of his name. What should Christians want? Everything in moderation. We should understand the risks of extremes. In this regard, William Perkins asked, 
how may a man with a good conscience possess and use riches? To which he answered, we must use special moderation of mind in possessing and using of riches and be content with our state. Moderation then includes the development of contentment. Contentment. We live in an age of flaunting. There are YouTube channels that have been created almost exclusively to feed material lust by showing us luxury. Watch out for anything that does that and learn to be content. Ask the Lord to give you neither riches nor poverty, but contentment. Number three, number three, not only love, not only moderation, but also limits, limits. This is one of the, this is the outflow of moderation and contentment. You must learn the beautiful virtue of saying no to yourself. Admittedly, here's the very difficult question regarding limits. How much is enough for one to have? Who knows the answer? That's a difficult question, isn't it? How much is enough for anyone to have? What's too much? It depends, right? It depends on what standard you use to measure. William Perkins, again, the great Puritan, gladly admitted that the Bible gives no specific answer. Gives no specific answer. Therefore, we must always use sanctified discretion. And if your conscience is yelling at you with certain uses of your money or specific acquisitions, then by all means, reconsider. If you're seeking to have a biblically informed conscience, then you do well to listen to it when the alarm goes off. Don't ignore it. And here comes the final principle of, from Puritan uh, writings, perspective, perspective, perspective. Put all your material possessions in perspective, meaning you must learn to see them in light of eternity. Richard Baxter, once again, he said, riches, material possessions, will seem dust and chaff to you if you believe and consider the everlasting state, end quote. This is not to say that you must not desire or work for financial stability in this life or for the life of your children and grandchildren. There is no sin in that. But do so with proper perspective. The greatest legacy you can leave behind is a true and sincere desire to love Jesus, his word, his church, and his mission. Remember this solemn warning, which comes in the form of a question from the mouth of Jesus. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity, Ecclesiastes 5.10. So there you have it. Love, moderation with contentment, limits, and perspective is how we honor the Lord with our wealth. And this also comes with a gracious promise, which is the next point, the gracious promise of submissive Stewardship. And what is that promise? Plentifulness. Verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Let's make sure we all understand something critical at this point. And I will do so by quoting Benjamin Franklin, 
who said, quote, early to bed and early to rise make a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Benjamin Franklin was not entirely wrong. Neither was he entirely right. In what sense? In the sense that this is not to be treated as a mathematical formula that always yields the same results. This doesn't mean then that if you give generously, you will become rich. If we treat this as a formula, we will fall into the trap of thinking that we are who we are and we have what we have by our own merit while forgetting that everything is from grace. As James chapter 1, verse 17 says, every good gift is from above. At the same time, let us not make the other mistake of questioning God's word. If he says that honoring him with our material wealth brings plentifulness to us, who are we to deny it? After all, don't we believe, don't we all believe God when he tells us that whoever believes in his son has eternal life and has passed from death to life? Charles Bridges in his wonderful commentary on Hebrews, I'm sorry, on Proverbs, offers really wise counsel. He said this, there is no presumption in looking for a literal fulfillment of this promise of Proverbs 3.10. If we doubt the temporal, should we not suspect our assumed confidence in the spiritual engagements? For if the Lord's word be insufficient security for our material substance, how can it be sufficient for the infinitely weightier deposit of our soul? That is a very good question for us to consider from Charles Bridges. If we trust the Lord with the eternal promises, let us do so as well with the temporal ones. And let me finish with this point for you to consider and take home with you. The redemptive roots of submissive stewardship. The redemptive roots of submissive stewardship. And there are two here that I want you to consider. First, the Exodus. The Exodus. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 26. This is the fifth book in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 26. The Exodus is, of course, the greatest manifestation of redemption that we see in the entire history of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Consider now with me the intimate and direct connection between the massive redemptive act of Exodus and the submissive stewardship of the Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10. It says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and live in it. You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Verse 5. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. Listen to what they said. 
A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. Verse 8. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. Verse 9. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. Did you see it? Submissive stewardship was all about redemption. It was all about redemption. It was a direct response to redemption. Now, please think of this with me. If the roots of submissive stewardship for Israel are found in God's redemptive acts in the Exodus, how much more are we called to be submissive stewards? If the Exodus is the redemptive root of submissive stewardship in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it is nothing less than the cross. The cross. Let us turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 1. And I want us to read verses 13 and 14. Keep in mind, redemption was the root, the basis of their submissive stewardship in the Old Testament. And they were brought out of the land of Egypt into the land of Canaan by God. On Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read the following. Listen carefully to these words. Here's a summary of our redemption. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Like the Israelites, but in a much more glorious way, we too have been delivered from one kingdom to another. From the kingdom of darkness and slavery to Satan, we have been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. And our deliverance through the cross of Christ far outweighs the exodus. Therefore, you and I, as those who have been redeemed, must come with our tithes and our offerings and say within our hearts, the Lord brought us out of darkness with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and now we are free. We were slaves but now we are free in Christ. Turn in your Bibles and we will finish here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you are struggling with submissive stewardship, if you have forgotten that you have a Lord over you, if you lack generosity or you are inconsistent in giving or you are unwise in spending, then I'm calling you this morning to look in faith at the cross of Christ, 
Look at the supreme generosity of the cross of Jesus and his blood. And here's the final invitation for you. Honor the Lord with your wealth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this simple, basic, yet important reminder that our faith touches every area of life, including our possessions and our wealth, and that we have been called to honor you. Help us to imitate those wonderful examples of church history like the Puritans who sought to honor you and to learn what that means, for it does matter. Help us not to be futile in our thinking regarding our possessions, but to seek to glorify you and to love our fellow neighbor through the things that we have been given. And thank you, Father, for the fact that our greatest possession, our greatest wealth, is none other than Christ himself, the Lord of glory. And because we have him, we know we have everything. And so help us, Lord, to know and to learn what it means to love him even in this area of life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.